Hello and welcome to Stream It, the podcast where we explore movies, old favorites, new favorites, and every so often movies we love just a little bit less. This is season two, episode one, and today we are going to be going back to 1999 and talking about The Matrix. As always, my name is Zachary Ortz. I am one of your co-hosts, and I am joined this week, just like each week preceding this week, by my good buddy Matthew Watkins. Hey Matt, how are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. How about you, Zach? Good. We are kicking off a new season here. We got eight episodes in the can for Disney Plus, and now uh, we're gonna <laughs> we're gonna do some rated R movies. <laughs> yeah, just jumping right into the deep end with this one. Um, and you know, Disney Plus was fun, and it, it, one of the things I loved about doing our Disney Plus season was just you know seeing the brand identity that Disney has. Uh, and, yeah. you know, HBO also has its brand identity, but uh, most of these films are not made by HBO, and they're just, you know, whatever they got, and it is a wide variety. It is, yeah, and we were, you know, we've only done two season openers so far, but we want to start things off with a bang, so why not start with a genre-defining mega-hit? Uh, yeah, one of the... Uh, this movie I've seen so many times, especially, like, the year that it was out. And, you know, it's just one that's uh, that I keep coming back to over and over and finding new things in. So I really enjoy it. I'm glad that we're talking about it. Yeah, absolutely. It is... This is... I do not think we could find a movie to watch for the podcast that I have seen more times as a cognizant cognizant adult this i did not see this movie in theaters i was too young for it i don't think i even knew it existed the first time that i saw it was at it was following some sort of boy scout event and we were back at the boy scout leader's house and the i think the troop that i was with or whoever there whoever i was there with were all a couple years older than me, so they had all seen The Matrix probably multiple times at that point, and they really wanted to watch it, and I was young and had no say, and they put it on, and I was just like, oh my goodness, this movie is, it was, like, it was the greatest thing I had ever seen. I did not know movies could make me feel the way this movie did, just so exhilarated and also mind-bending and it was not a movie we ever owned but it is a movie that anytime I was over at someone's maybe I did own it at some point but not until like late in high school if I did but it was a movie that if I was ever over at someone's house and they had it I was like "Ooh, let's watch let's watch The Matrix and so not only is it a movie that I've seen a lot and I saw a lot at that time it was a movie that I saw a lot with a lot of different people and when my my best friend Evan Foss who I went to high school with it was the movie that we used to test out the new sound system that he had gotten in his house uh, this would probably would have been I guess mid-2000 or maybe 2001 I can't remember if it was before or after high school and then I rewatched it in college 
and I haven't watched it since then. So it was nice to go back and revisit it. Yeah, it's a, a similar kind of experience for me. I remember when this one came out, and it was in the theaters, and I was not allowed to watch rated R movies, and so I did not go see it in the theater. And then it was on TV, like Thanksgiving of that year, or something like that, on, oh, what channel was it? Uh, my brain wants to tell me it was on TCM, but I can't remember for sure. I kind of like vaguely remember the logos because we recorded this off the television onto the VCR. Oh boy! Yeah, so we made it. We made a recording of it on the VCR, uh, and it was on TV. So that was that. Was, the parents gave the thumbs up because it was on TV. And we downloaded it, or not downloaded it, recorded it. Downloading would have been, you know, a lot different. But we recorded it off the TV and tried to make sure that we got all the commercial breaks, you know, just right and everything. And then during the Christmas vacation of that year, my brother and I, who was 13, um, and I was 15 at the time, we watched it, I think, every day of that entire break. Um <laughs> Yeah, so you know so like 15 times we watched it uh, during that time period and over the next couple of years i would come back to it uh, over and over and over again and then like you once i went to college i just kind of didn't go back to it until a few weeks ago two weeks ago i think i sat down and watched it with my son ethan for the first time it's the first rated r movie that he's ever seen um, mm. And so it was a big deal uh, as we were as we were turning on and watching it, and you know that was uh, that's my experiences with this movie. When they showed it on TV, do, do you remember what they would have changed? Yeah, I do. I I remember they changed essentially like two scenes really. One of them is at the end when the song is playing like over the credits, it has multiple F words in it. And so they, oh, they right, took those of course. out. <laughs> and then there's the scene where he's getting interrogated by the agents and he flips them off and they edit it so you can't see him flip it off. That's what that's what got them a rated R? Man. So that is what, uh, like based on my other viewings of it, because I've seen it so many times on you know, recorded off the TV. Those are the only two things that I can remember being substantially different. I wouldn't be surprised if there's a couple of things where maybe the language is slightly different or, you know, they cut off just like this a smidgen of a scene. But the, the kind of body horror stuff in the middle, that's just fully in there. Not even, you know, the stuff with the little worm that goes into his uh, stomach and uh, all of that kind of stuff. All totally fine. No, no edits there. Just, you know, I very clearly remember the flipping them off scene being edited out. Wow. <laughs> yeah, it's great. <laughs> That's funny. All right. So let's talk. Let's jump back a little bit and let's remember what 1999 is like. And I think this watching the movie this time, there was a line that I believe Agent Smith says to Morpheus where he says that 1990, they set the simulation in 1999 because it's the peak of civilization. <laughs> which, which is a funny thing because it places the movie where in the present time if you're watching it in 1999. But it also made me realize how perfectly situated this movie was for when it came out. Because it's a movie about 
transition and it's a movie about becoming and moving to the next level and here we were march 31st 1999 sitting on the precipice of a new century on the precipice of a new millennium and there (laughs) when i was doing the rundown of things that happened in 1999 it's just like oh my goodness everything happened this year so if you were if you were listening to the radio on your way to the movie theater this weekend, the top three songs were Believe by Cher, Heartbreak Hotel by Whitney Houston, and Every Morning by Sugar Ray. And we haven't always mentioned the top songs, even though I do uh, look them up just because I think it's kind of fun to see what they are. But the reason I mentioned be- mention them this time is Believe by Cher is famously the first song to use Melodyne, the auto-tune software, as a sound. Um, So I think knowing that it was there is kind of emblematic about the that things were changing, that we were moving towards a new sound, a sound that was really going to impact how music sounds forever. Yeah, and the the way that it uses the auto-tune in that is... You know, it's not subtle either. It's, you know... No, it's not trying to hide it. Yeah. It's part of the sound of the song. And it gives it kind of like this, um, I mean, this kind of cyberpunk vibe to it, um, which really Mm -hmm. fits in with the aesthetic of The Matrix. Um, Additionally, Believe by Cher is one of those songs that, you know, you sing uh, that first line and, you know... (laughs) um, Uh, every LGBT person in the radius is going to, you know, jump in with the next line. So uh, I think in a lot of ways, The Matrix is kind of uh, a connection with that as well. Just it is uh, it is a cult classic, especially among like millennials and LGBT millennials and, you know, lots of other folks as well. Yeah. And uh, and also alt-right millennials. But we'll... Yep. We'll get into that dichotomy uh, a little bit later. Opening, there was only one other movie that opened the same weekend as this movie, and it was 10 Things I Hate About You. Although, somewhat interestingly, there was another movie that did not receive a wide release. I think it was only, like, it was only released in one movie theater in New York, and it did also open this weekend. And that is a little movie called The Following which was the directorial debut by one Christopher Nolan. Wow. <laughs> what a weekend. <laughs> yeah, what a weekend. His movie before Memento, which uh, Carrie Ann Moss would... Right, Carrie Ann Moss? Yes. Yeah, yeah, which Carrie Ann Moss would go on to star in. And so The Matrix ended up number four four on the box office list for this year and that's because uh about six weeks after this happened star wars episode one was released and shattered all the box office records <laughs> yeah i mean it is it was an incredible year in movies just the and everything was getting shaken up like the whole movie business and the way that people were making movies even star wars episode one you know the the way that it was using technology to make those movies was so fundamentally different than what had come before you know debuting on the same weekend as 10 things i hate about you oh my goodness now that is another movie that i just adore so much it's one of my most favorites and just 
it's such an incredible incredible weekend to have gone to the movies um with all that stuff yep and i one of the things i think that's interesting about this coming before star wars is i was listening to a podcast a couple years ago and they said that they were they were they had they mentioned something about watching a video from the movie theater release of maybe it wasn't a podcast maybe i saw it on twitter but it's a movie the release for episode six so return of the jedi and one of the things that struck them about watching that video is everyone waiting to see that movie was just an unparalleled excitement land because we hadn't had the experience of having the prequels and having and realizing that your excitement could <laughs> be dashed in such a way or like that we would go through the roller coaster of mm-hmm. expectations with the with the prequel trilogy and so i think i don't know some someone older than us or older than me would have to weigh in on how true that was but certainly for me i don't know that recognizing that there could be huge expectations and then that disappointment didn't happen until the prequel trilogy and then it would happen later with the second and third movies in the matrix trilogy as well yeah yeah uh that is certainly true and you know episode one was hyped so much um that trailer Mm -hmm. got played just over and over and over again um and it was i mean it was a really good trailer that they put together for that one the other thing that sticks out to me from that summer is that part of the big hype with star wars episode one was how much work they had put in for the special effects and the mm-hmm. the way that it would look um, and, you know, their, the computer effects and all of those things that they were going to put in Star Wars Episode One. Everyone was just expecting this incredibly um, beautiful movie. And Matrix came out six weeks before it and looked better. Um, <laughs> and I cannot explain how, like, the experience of this, I mean, this was what I remember that summer because I remember watching like uh, so many commercials and things about it and people talking about it uh, over that summer before I, I had seen it. And this was the conversation I heard over and over and over after Phantom Menace came out is, you know, the Matrix came out and it's did, it did everything better than Star Wars was doing. And that comparison was really so strong at the time period. Uh, and I think it really set up for... Uh, the way that people reacted to Star Wars Episode One as well. A few other events that happened here in 1999. So uh, February 12th, Bill Clinton was acquitted by the Senate. The His impeachment had been by the House had been in December of 98. And then I mentioned this uh, because I think it's sort of tangentially related. On March 6th, Alex Jones created Infowars. And so I think these two events sort of show sort of hallmark a growing cynicism and a growing distrust of power that started to happen in our country and i think that's something that the matrix preys on the matrix or maybe prey is like too predatory of a word to taps into negative of a word yeah yeah taps Taps into into it's just something that was in the ethos and i think it's something that 
helped the movie to be so successful. Napster debuted in June of this year. Uh, for maybe some some youngins out there who don't know what Napster is, Napster was a file sharing program that allowed you to do peer to peer file sharing. Um, it was you could, I mean, it basically opened up the world of music for millennials. You did not have to wait for the radio to play it. Basically, any song you wanted, you could go onto Napster, you could search for it, and because internet was slow back then, you generally had to wait like 90 minutes, but then you'd be able to listen to that song. I, I remember this, though I want to clarify for um, anyone you know from the FBI that might be listening that I would never have used any such uh, program uh, at any time, but... Yeah, right. All just... my knowledge comes from watching YouTube videos before the podcast. Yes, of exactly. How Napster mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. One hundred percent. So yeah, I mean, it really did change. Uh, there's so many just things about technology fundamentally changed at this time. I just remember for for me, like we didn't have internet before at this time, and we got the internet the year afterwards at my house. Mm-hmm. so uh, the in 2000 so you know uh, just to understand like where this was where this was at and how things were i was in high school and you know did not have access to the internet at my house until a few weeks after um i had started watching this movie that was about all of this stuff with the internet and all of those kinds of things I would, yeah, I was a little too young to remember when we got internet, but I, I think we actually did have it by this point. Um, but I did look up, <laughs> I tried to look up when internet became like widely available or when public usage started, but Pew did not start polling people on whether or not they had internet until the year 2000. So in their first poll in 2000, 52% of Americans had internet and 1% had broadband. So I I think it's fair to assume that in 99, it was probably less than 50%, so less than a plurality of households. Yeah, it's a, uh, you know, I lived in, uh, in a rural town um, at the time period, and I know that uh, this is me going off my memory, so that some of this timeline not, m- might not be exactly right, but I remember that the phone company didn't really offer uh, dial-up out there in, in the rural, you know, middle of rural Nevada desert until I think, ooh, like 98, maybe 97, mm-hmm. um, and then we got dial-up in 99, and so, or uh, not 99, right at 2000 after the winter break. Uh, is when we got it. Maybe if my dad listens to the podcast. I, did, I forgot to ask him until it was too late, so maybe he, he probably remembers. Uh, or if my mom remembers and is listening, although I don't know if she listens to the podcast. Maybe they'll let us know when, when we got internet. Um, so by 2004, then a quarter of Americans had broadband. So that's... Things started moving quickly yes. after the turn of the century. And then I also wanted to look at the history of cell phones a little bit and the so 99 it's a little hard to tell because the technology was invented before things became widely in use but at the timelines that i was looking at what i picture is like 
the first cell phones that my parents had. So sort of those handheld Nokia's that you could play Snake on. Yeah. Those uh, those became widely used in 99, 99 to like 2003. And then in 2003 to 2006 was when 3G became widely available. And that's when fancy people started having Blackberries and you could (laughs) send emails on your phone or look up sports scores really slowly. And then it wasn't until 2007 that there was the first iPhone. So that's sort of the the trajectory of cell phones. And then I also wanted to look at when mobile hopscotches landlines. And the because one of the interesting things about this movie is how reliant they are on landlines, <laughs> which yeah, is <laughs> I know. definitely, yeah. I mean, people still have landlines, apparently. Do you have a landline? No. No. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I don't have a landline. My parents don't have a landline. Um, My grandma on my dad's side doesn't have one. My grandma on my mom's side still has a landline. So that's, you know, where that stands. So in 2005, it looks like 42% of people had landline and a wireless phone. Only about 8% of people were wireless only. And then in 2007, there's a huge jump for people who have landlines but also have wireless, where it jumps up to 60%. And meanwhile, the wireless-only crew are just on the steady ascent all the way through, and then it finally passes each other in 2014. So that's the threshold where more people are have gone wireless-only than people who are landline with the wireless phone. This all checks out. It all checks out. I right. remember in, I think, 95. Would that be accurate? 95? Yes. 95, uh, my dad got his first cell phone. Um, maybe 96. But it was a box that had a handheld receiver and a cord mm. that you had to pick up that went in his truck and had to be plugged into the, to the uh, cigarette lighter. And he had this because he worked, like, out in the desert, so he needed to be able to take a call uh, and things like that. And it was not very good. Not very good reception. But, you know, I remember that. And then getting the... I, I remember the phone situation just progressing so quickly throughout this entire time period. Yep. Uh, I just have... So I just have two more things to mention after our... Uh... <laughs> 1999 technology deep dive here. So The Sopranos, which is something that I sort of think of, mentioned The Sopranos because it's our HBO season, which is something that I sort of think of as one of the hallmarks for the beginning of television being made how we know it now, rather than on network TV, that the first season of The Sopranos finished just about 10 days after The Matrix is released. Wow. Which is also kind of funny because Cypher would... He's not in season one of The Sopranos, but he is in The Sopranos, I think, starting in season season two or season three. Probably off the back of this film. uh, Probably, yeah. Got him casted there, yeah. And then the... Oh, I just wanted to... The last thing I wanted to mention that happened this year, which is much sadder, so I waited until the end, is on April 20th, Columbine happened. And this was the, it was a big moment for Matrix. I think at least my memory is, and was, I mean, it was obviously a big moment for the country as well. It was hugely devastating and 
I mean, anytime there's that much death, and especially when it's kids, it's really just horrible. But it also, my memory is that it kicked off a huge conversation about violence in media and created a lot of what now I sort of think of as hand-wringing, um, but I don't know that it necessarily would have felt that way at the time. Now we know that there isn't really a direct correlation between consuming violence in media and committing violence, but that the studies were not as sound at the time, or at least if they were sound, they weren't well known. Yeah, it's a, I mean, I remember this very well and kind of the panic that went on. Uh, I remember it because, like, it became, there's so much panic over, like, video games and things like that. Yeah. And I remember my parents kind of, like, panicking a little bit over what video games to allow us to play. Things like, I believe at the time, you had, like, GoldenEye 007, things like that. But also, like, the, the Columbine uh, shooting got a lot of play, and it was always put on, like, directly alongside uh, pictures of the Matrix, because um, the oh, kids, wow. like, um, had the trench coats, and so they would put, like, side-by-side comparisons on the news at this time period. And, like, the the Matrix was cited at the time period like these people were making a direct link saying that the matrix was part of the cause of this along with violent video games and things like that i did not i don't think i was cognizant of that i think i just was like i just want to watch this movie that i really liked (laughs) like stop (laughs) stop comparing it to this yeah it's weird because this is this is when i actually was like paying attention to things like the news on tv and things like that and so uh, this all sticks out very clearly in my memory of how much people freaked out about how much these kids were influenced by the Matrix. I'll see if I can find some. <laughs> I spent too much time researching cell phones, but I'll see if I can find some links to coverage of this that I can put in the show notes for people to take a look at if it's something they're interested in. Do you have anything else to say about 1999? That's all I got to say about 1999. It's a transition year. You know, it's a People were panicking about uh, technology and all the stuff that this movie talks about is very timely when it came out. Yeah. So how did it how did it hit you this time around? Uh, yeah, I really enjoyed it this time around. Um, I watched it this week, but the the viewing that kind of impacted me more for for today was when I watched it with Ethan two weeks ago because the I was like I watched it really closely because I was watching it with him. So mm-hmm. watching it this time, I was more remembering watching it with him than I was like focusing on an individual viewing this time and you know it was just for him like he was really engaged with it and just really connecting with the film really strongly and it held up so well for for him just like all of these different moments in in the film um there are a bunch of things that i was watching this this time just things that stood out to me just as curiosities like oh that's this is interesting or uh, i hadn't really thought about this because you know it's been been a while since i actually sat and uh, watched it closely as an adult but i enjoyed it i you know i loved it it was a lot of fun trying to figure out what i'm gonna do about showing ethan the rest of them and you know as we're gearing up for the Matrix 4 are coming out in the wintertime of this year. Yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm kind of interested to watch, I specifically did not watch 2 and 3 before the podcast because I didn't want to be, I didn't want to cloud my memory or anything, but the, 
I did have that same feeling when the movie was over that I was like, I just want to, I just want more. I just want to go right into the next one. And same thing for me. I've been delaying number two and number three because I knew we were doing this episode. So I've just been waiting to do it. And I'm like, once we finish this, I'm probably going to go watch number two tonight. So, uh, yeah. So I guess that's a bit of a, I guess I led with the lead there for how the movie affected me this time. I, I loved it. There was basically all of the action sequences and everything they did with bullet time. It's the same experience I had when I watched it in college, whatever, a little over a decade ago, where I'm just like, I don't understand how this held up so well visually. It just looks unbelievable. And I think a lot of it is camera work. A lot of it is um, like they just have fantastic shots. And there was, even for a movie that I've seen so many times, there was still new stuff that I picked up on, which is pretty awesome. There were a few visual effects, uh, digital effects, that they did hit me this time that I was like, oh, that, I noticed that the little belly button squid looks worse than I would imagine it would look if it were made today. Um, and the and there was the face thing with the, and the when face. his mouth gets covered up yeah yeah and the other part that I thought that I was like I I don't know enough technically to know how they would do it but I was like I bet they could do this better is any of the times that they were moving so fast that their fists started blurring yeah I was like oh I bet I bet there are better ways to do this now but the the biggest thing for me was this was my first time viewing this film since it's become well known or at least i've seen it talked about a lot that the for the wachowski sisters this was a movie about their experience of being trans and figuring out that they were trans and viewing the movie through a trans lens. And so probably the last time I watched it, I maybe the amount that I knew about trans people was, uh, it wasn't zero, but it was pretty close to zero. So, (laughs) but it still was just like, wow, how could I have not seen it? Yeah, it's, it's pretty clear, isn't it? Yeah. It's, it's all uh, over the movie, yeah. It's all over the movie, and just like, I don't know. Like, looking at it in hindsight, it seems so obvious. It really does. And that is one of the things that I enjoyed. When I said I hadn't watched it up until I watched it with Ethan, I do remember a few years ago people were really talking about uh, viewing The Matrix through a trans identity. I went back and watched it uh, to with that kind of specifically in mind. So I had also seen it once, kind of looking at it through that lens. And like you said, it just is really, like, it's not hidden. It's pretty clear. I think it's obvious at this point that that is a big part of what they were trying to do. Yeah. I want to move on to personnel here quickly, but I do want to say the one other thing that was not as good as I remembered it a lot of the costuming looks exactly as awesome as I remember it. The trench coats, the sunglasses. I don't oh, know. Yeah. I don't know if it does without my nostalgia. But the one thing that I remembered just thinking was the coolest thing that this time through, I was like, oh, 
it doesn't look as good as I remembered, was a lot of Trinity's clothing. A lot of it felt a little uh, cheap. It looked cheap to me. I don't... I didn't like pause plasticky. to try and figure out why. Yeah, yeah, a little yeah, yeah, plasticky, yeah. but not... It's so reflective. Like, yeah, I, yeah, it makes sense to me. But not, like, form-hugging in a way that that you would expect that would make it look sleek. Not in a way that would make it look sexy, because I think it looks plenty sexy, but it doesn't look... It doesn't have that, like, refined look that I... It did in my head. Makes sense. It's a... I still... I love Trinity's outfits in this so much. I just think she looks so powerful, and, like, she has... She just looks... Like, the movement to her is so great in this one. And, like, that's one of the things that sticks out to me. Like, I know that they're part of what they're trying to sell with it is um, uh, sexually exploitative to to an extent. But at the same time, this is an outfit that, to me, also feels really empowering um, and strong and graceful. Uh, and I just love Trinity in it. And she's just iconic for me in that way and of course you know morpheus with his glasses that just go on to his uh the bridge of his nose you know yeah, oh, i love so this cool. so much <laughs> yeah i love it so much and still now i'm like oh man i want those glasses so that's pretty great it, yeah all right let's talk a little bit about the the human beings who who got us here let's start off by talking I think we've said a lot about the Wachowski sisters, but I do want to run down their their movies quickly, their filmography, because I think it's a pretty interesting one. And this was only their second movie, really. They So they started with Bound, and then I believe it was Warner Brothers was really... They were really impressed with Bound, and so they sort of gave them a green light for their next movie, which is how they were able to get the matrix and the they did work with the same composer on bound so don davis who hadn't really done a ton of other feature films until this period if you go back and look at his filmography it's a lot of tv shows and i think direct to tv movies as well and then he does bound in the matrix and (laughs) then he starts getting a lot of movies after that Uh, and also the same cinematographer with Bill Pope. Um, and similar mm. story, Bill Pope did a lot of music videos. So he, he was pretty real, well respected in that kind of industry. Uh, and then did Bound, and it was such a critical darling. And then The Matrix and just a litany of incredible things afterwards. So the the rest of the Wachowski, uh, Lana and Lily's... I hope I'm pronouncing their last name right. I guess I didn't look it up. But l- the rest of Lana and Lily's... Uh, filmography so they had speed racer and then cloud atlas and then jupiter ascending and then not a movie but a tv show since eight and then upcoming of course matrix resurrections yeah it's a and i have seen the matrix and then the second matrix film and since eight so and but i'm familiar with uh speed racer cloud atlas and jupiter ascending and the style and all of those kinds of things and all the stuff that they have done that i have seen i have thoroughly enjoyed um and just love and you know it's good stuff yeah i so i think the matrix movies are the only movies i've seen and after watching i was like oh i should i should definitely go check out some of the others 
Yeah, it's a they they have definitely like this kind of surrealist uh, style and vibe to all of their films, and they're all similar to The Matrix. They're all just deeply philosophical. All of these kinds of things. There's a lot of criticism in recent years with the I'm going to say the Wachowskis because that way one of oh, us will have the pronunciation. Okay. One, one of us will have is it right. What you said, yeah. Yeah. So. Uh, but there's been a lot of um, uh, criticism of the Wachowski sisters in the past few years that the they approach things with a little bit of a white lens, um, which I think is clear in uh, in their work, and I would agree with that. Overall, I think they do really good work, um, that, but there's a lot of areas that they could improve, and I think probably they also uh, realize that they have areas that they can improve. And hopefully they can figure out how to do that. Yeah, there's definitely some appropriation that I bumped on in this viewing that I definitely would not have been educated enough to bump on before. But we'll be able to talk about that as we talk about more specific scenes for sure. Did you want to say anything else about Bill Pope? Uh, about Bill Pope, yeah. So Bill Pope is just an incredible cinematographer, one of the greats. And he does this film. He does uh, Bound and then The Matrix 1, 2, and 3. Uh, and then some of the his CV, this is just uh, a few highlights from his CV include Spider-Man 2, Spider-Man 3, which we can all recognize as one of the greatest cinematog- uh, cinematographic achievements of all time. Additionally, Scott Pilgrim, The Jungle Book, this is the new kind of like, quote unquote, live action one. He did the Cosmos mm. series with Neil deGrasse Tyson, <laughs> which is just incredible. And this, it took up way more time. You know, he normally a film he'll work on for 60 to 100 days, something like that. Uh, and he spent 270 days, something like that on Cosmos. He did Baby Driver, Charlie's Angels, Alita Bat- Battle Angel, which... Again, just incredible cinematography on this one. And then this year he has Shang-Chi, and then next year he has Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania. And this is just, like, some of the highlights. He has a lot of other just really great films. And he's one of one of my favorite working cinematographers. Uh, he And a lot of these films are just incredible work. And um, you had mentioned, like, why that so much of it had held up from this film so much of the special effects and things like that and the reason why is because they tried to do as much as they could practically um Mm. uh, you know when they're doing the bullet time sequences uh when when trinity like jumps into the air and she's jumping like that is a practical effect effect they just have a bunch of cameras that are all placed around her and then uh they rotate around and paint out the cameras that are in the background but otherwise it's a it's a practical effect and um a lot of the other sequences the fight sequences are just practical and rehearsed and choreographed to death um and there's you know they're adding special effects to a lot of these things but so much of it is practical so much of the uh, so much of it is just like filters on the lighting and you know figuring out how to put these things together in a way that's just real and so it holds up so much better than a lot of other things that uh, were trying to use computers more heavily in their work even from the time period yeah and it's all harness work that's yes. all and I believe, like, the they trained the actors exceptionally hard for this movie. They did mm-hmm. a lot of work, and a lot of them did 
the majority of their own stunts. Yeah, it's a one of the, you know, it's just kind of accepted in Hollywood that Keanu Reeves and Carrie on Carrie Ann Moss are just kind of famous for really getting involved in doing their own stunts. Uh, Keanu mm-hmm. Reeves even even to this day doing John Wick, uh he is very heavily involved and really trains in all of the combat. But also Lawrence Fishburne at the time period was uh you know, he learned uh, so much of what he was doing and you know not quite as much now like his uh his physique probably doesn't hold up to that kind of level of rigor that was in this film but at the time period yeah he he did so much of his own work yeah and that just i mean it lets them do close-ups it lets you see them flying through the air and <laughs> yeah it looks stuff. great it's good stuff it really is um uh, I highly recommend if people want to see just the the breadth of Bill Pope's work. You know, Baby Driver has a lot of problematic people involved with it, so that one's a tri- tricky one to watch. But the cinematography on it that Bill Pope does is just absolutely incredible. Um, some of the best cinematography that I've seen in like the past two decades. And then Shang Chi also has some really good practical effects. There's uh, the scene on the bus that probably people are familiar with. It's just incredible camel work, and it's uh, it's hard to even imagine how they got those shots and how they made them happen. And then The Jungle Book, which is, you know, uh, a really iconic, game-changing film from the technology perspective in the same way that The Matrix was as at its time period. Yeah, it's hard to capture all those, like, bears singing for real. You know, you have to wait <laughs> in, the, in the jungle for hours until they exactly. finally break into it's song. Hard it's hard work. Yeah, for 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 those that uh, that don't realize what the the joke is there, it's a uh, everything in the Jungle Book is filmed. You know, it's all created in a computer. All of the animals, but also the setting. They just went down and filmed the jungle, but then came back and created an entire digital jungle. And then they were able to move like their camera through the digital jungle and project it on the screens behind the actor as they were performing. Um, so it's they created their own matrix. They created their own matrix, yeah. And so, and uh, the things that are practical on the Jungle Book are Mowgli and the ground that he is walking on, and everything <laughs> else is digital. Um, uh, it's, that's it. That's the whole thing. That's funny. Yeah. All right. So one more here, even though. Man, the cast for this movie just absolutely kills it. <laughs> they're it they're so good. Uh, but let's talk a bit about Keanu Reeves, who was not their first choice, and I don't think even their second choice for this film. They originally wanted Will Smith to do it. Yeah, and can you imagine? I, I think Will Smith would have knocked this film out of the park, actually. Um, oh, it would have been amazing, but it would have been a very different movie. A very different movie. Um, and, you know, I, it's hard to imagine um, someone besides Keanu performing this role, but it's a, it's, it's, he does such an incredible job. And he was relatively not as well known at the time period. He had done Bill and Ted, which, you know, was popular and had a sequel. Uh, but it was still kind of like an underground kind of cult movie. He did Speed. That was about a decade before this. Yeah. About a decade before that. And then about five years afterwards, he did Speed, which is big with Sandra Bullock. And then dropped off for another five years until he did The Matrix. And so it was... Keanu Reeves was not a star at the time period. And I don't think really 
anybody in the film really was. Carrie Ann Moss had done a little bit, but I don't think she was a star at the time. Period. I think it was and, just no Carrie Ann Moss. She credits this movie with giving her a career. Yeah, um, yeah. There it, are several quotes. I think Lawrence Fishburne was probably the most established of the well, bunch. possibly Hugo Weaving who plays Agent Smith. Also possibly, but even with those those actors, none of them were like household names at the time period. Um, even the the bigger actors in the film. Yeah, what was interesting when I was looking at, I believe both Lawrence Fishburne and Hugo Weaving, and you can tell um, if you think about this movie, both of them were stage actor trained. Yes. Which there are some... There are some difficult lines to deliver in this movie, and you have to commit to them, and they're able to do it, for sure. they absolutely do. Since then, Keanu kind of, he's stayed in this pattern of, like, five years, does something, and then kind of disappears. He does a lot of films in the meantime, but uh, uh, they aren't as big. He did Constantine in the Lake House, but then he ended up doing John Wick, and then also exploded at that time period as the Internet's Boyfriend just one of the most beloved yeah. people in the entire world and so he has been all over the place in the time since john wick came out and you know if you want to see one of my favorite moments of keanu reeves of all time uh the movie always be my maybe it is uh, you know not the most amazing film but the keanu reeves cameo in that film is a, an amazing masterpiece of artwork uh, it's about a 15-20 minute sequence where he shows up, and it is just phenomenal and totally worth watching the movie just for that sequence. <laughs> Film recommendations with StreamIt. Yes. All right. One of the things that I wanted to say oh. about Keanu Reeves before we move on is uh, one of the things that I find particularly fascinating about Keanu Reeves and his perception and the way that he's cast in this movie is... You know, Keanu Reeves is perceived as white, um, and he has one of his parents is white, but his other parent is Asian and is like a mixture of different uh, Asian identities. And I think, you know, I think it's really, really important and kind of to understand like the, as he like is a white passing person that also has a lot of these identities and having to code switch between different kinds of identities and ways of viewing the world and uh, ways that people view him. I think that's important for the kinds of films that Keanu Reeves puts in and the kind of uh, person that he is on his films. He's generally known as just an incredibly hard worker, an incredibly giving and generous performer, uh, and also co-worker. Just as we're recording this, there's a video going around right now, a viral video of Keanu Reeves carrying the equipment from the that the grips are trying to carry this heavy camera equipment up the stairs and they're like oh mr reeves you don't have to do that and he's like no it's fine and carrying it up and going on with it um (laughs) and he's just this kind of he's just this kind of actor that really gives everything his all and really cares about the entire crew is very caring and giving and empathetic uh, from all reports of people that have acted alongside him and, you know, it's just, he's, he's a genuinely beloved person. Yeah, and the pretty uh, famously on the set of The Matrix, he, I think at some point, either right before filming or in the midst of filming or prepping for the movie, had to have back surgery. And 
but still did all of his own work and continued to train even on the days he was supposed to have off days. And I mean, the work, the it shows in the movie, right? It shows in how well his action sequences are able to come off. Though I do want to tell people that if you're if you're injured, take your sick days. Even you, Keanu, you can you can take a sick day. It's okay. We'll we'll still love you uh, even if you do. So yeah. All right. So let's get into talking about the the movie here. Uh, Fifty minutes in. Yeah. Uh, we have we have received some feedback that the people really enjoy the beginning segments of the show. So as as always, if we've tweaked something too far and we need to cut back on that section, do let us know. But anyway, so the first scene that I wanted to talk about is I wanted to talk about this prologue. And the I call it the prologue because this is what what I use to describe when I use the prologue I mean something that is preceding where your typical like hero's journey structure would start. And I think that's the function that this six minute opener of Trinity doing stuff that you have no idea what <laughs> what any of it is if you're in your initial viewing. I think that's the category that this falls into. And one of the things I love about this sequence is in my memory, this is like an action-packed sequence, but they really just sort of pepper in a few things here. So the I guess I'll run down the sequence quickly. So you see Trinity sitting in the room and the police officers come in and tell her to raise her hands. And then it cuts to Agent Smith arriving on the scene and he's going to argue with local police officer and tell him that he messed up protocol and he should have waited. And His men are already officer, dead. <laughs> yep. One of <laughs> it's a line that I wrote down because his delivery is so good. And it just, <laughs> it's the first moment of the movie that it's like, wait, what's going on here? Well, the line and that then, stands out from, to me from that one is when the police officer turns back to him. I think we can handle one little girl. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, nope. <laughs> and then you cut to Trinity, and it is so fast when they move to handcuff her, handcuff her, and she incapacitates them. You get the first instance in the movie of bullet time where she jumps up, the camera pans around her, and she kicks the cop into the wall. And then you get one other stunt in this scene where she runs up the wall, uh, something that I tried to do so many times <laughs> in gym class. Um, yeah, I, I'd say I probably did it just as well as she did. Probably, yeah. And and then it's over, and then they're down, and then all you really know at this moment is she's in trouble. You see her on the phone talking to Morpheus, and you just get little little dribbles of information that somehow they knew where she was and she asks if there are agents and uh, Morpheus says yes and she says shit and then you get the sequence of her running across the rooftops which I don't know I must have just not been keyed in 
But th I, this sequence has to be an homage to Vertigo. I'm pretty sure they use a couple shot-for-shot shot sequences, especially it when... seems like it, yeah. Yeah, when one of the cops falls down. And I love that because it grounds it in this thing that you know, and then all of a sudden she just takes a flying leap over the the chasm of the building. And it's... I think every th before that point, it's not... 100% clear that you're dealing with something supernatural, something that couldn't be in our world. I think the bullet time and the wall run previously could sort of just be explained as someone who's really good at fighting or really good at martial arts. But at this point, you see her fly, and then you see the agent fly, and you get commentary from the cops who say, that's impossible. And at that point is the first moment that you're like, oh, there's something going on here. Yeah. And, um, and yeah, then, go ahead. It, one of the things that stands out to me is that the way that Trinity jumps and she lands in like a roll as she goes and then uh, takes so off going cool. very smooth. And then the agent jumps up behind her and just like lands like oh, so hard crashes. onto the ground. It's yeah. just like, gonk. Um, and she keeps running after this uh, and jumps like through a window, holding her hands out and like spinning at such a distance and rolls down the stairs. And she has such a strong feeling of just panic and fear of this of this agent and what's going on and you know, that that part i remember as being very palpable uh when i had watched it and just it it she seems so capable and so amazing and yet she seems terrified it's it's a great sequence yeah i think it's also not at least when i watched it the first time i don't know what the intention was but for me, it was not immediately clear who's the good guy and who's the bad guy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, that's a bit, a bit ambiguous. I mean, um, I was I was rooting uh, at that time for the lady that uh, that beat up the cops and was running away for the FBI agents. <laughs> so <laughs> you know, um, that 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 was easy for me to choose which side. But I think the film was leaving it ambiguous. Yeah, the one of the I said that there were things that I noticed for the first time this time. And I've always thought this moment where she says to herself at the beginning, get up, Trinity, get up, was a little strange. But this was the first time I noticed that that's really the first of three times that she does this in this movie. She'll later say it under her breath to Morpheus. I'm pretty sure she says it to Morpheus before when he's being held and they're rescuing him from the helicopter. And then she says it again to Neo. Oh, um, so that's not interesting. Yeah, I'm not sure if that's supposed to mean something, if it's supposed to symbolize something, but it did, It was a through line that I finally noticed this time, this time through. And then the this cold open ends with her rushing for the telephone. And once you know what's going on, you can see that there's someone driving that truck who gets taken over by an agent, but they don't show you the transformation. And so it's not like it's something it's a little Easter egg there for you on your rewatch. But otherwise, it's just like, man, why is everyone gunning for this poor woman? And then, of course, the truck hits the, the phone booth and there's that amazing shot of her holding her hand up to the window and it just exploding. But then she's gone. She's not there. Yeah. 
Uh, and for the listeners that didn't see this, both of us both imitated this shot at the same time, putting our, <laughs> our hands up in front of us, like, uh, on the window, because it's such an iconic shot, and it, it really is great. And then when the, the phone is, like, dangling down, it's, uh, it's, it's a great opening little... It's like a great little short film. It really is, yeah. And I, we were trying to decide the last scene to talk about, and we don't talk about... I guess we did talk about the prologue in Inside Out as well. So maybe I shouldn't say we don't normally talk about it. But I just think it's such an exciting way to start the movie. And I think it does such a good job of giving you just the right amount of questions without really being expository at all. Yeah, the the word for this that we use in like um, literature circles is that it starts in media rest, like in the middle of things. Mm-hmm. Uh, the action is like happening at that moment. It's not explaining everything. You got to pick up the pace as it's going. The place where you see a lot of films that do this kind of thing is uh, I always think of it as the James Bond opening. How yeah, that's Bond, what I think of as well. You know, he always starts off. He's like in the middle of a mission. You have no idea what's going on. Then goes through all of his business. Um, and uh, this one is just so good, though, because because of all just the little teeny clues that they drop at each point of the way that you know that something is uh, it, it. There's so many times where you're like, OK, is this just an action movie that I'm watching? And then all of a sudden they do something that really stands out. And uh, it really does. It really does work so well uh, for introducing the world, and then you get introduced to the protagonist later, who's a completely different person that you haven't seen yet in the entire film. But everything around him has kind of been shown. Yeah, and I think one of the, I think one of the weird things that this movie does so successfully, is it presents this problem. It presents a series of connected problems of how is Trinity able to do these superhuman things, and. Neo, how is how does Morpheus know everything that's going on with Neo in the opening? And he eventually asks, "What is the Matrix?" And it's all these like questions that it almost seems impossible for the answer to be satisfactory. And then I don't know they they hit exactly the sweet spot of big enough to feel huge but not so big that you just don't care yeah yeah i agree and it's uh like i said it's hard for to believe that it's going to be satisfactory until until he takes the pill and wakes up and you're just like oh okay that was uh, a lot bigger uh even than i was expecting um yeah so sorry i talked a lot through that prologue is there anything else you want to say about it or no, we covered a lot of the things that uh, that stuck out to me about that one. Um, I love the choreography of it, the cinematography. Um, one of the things that I find so fascinating is the the way that they build the cinematography in this one. The and like the costume design and all of these things. Everything is so polished and so sleek, and like the costumes and everything when they are in the Matrix, uh, and then later on when they come out of it, mm. you get this very different vibe. Even the kinds of lenses that they are using are different. It has less of like a green filter on it, and it's like the costume design is different. Their hair is completely different. There's more like uh, blemishes on their skin. Their clothing is all rougher, and the way that they use the cinematography to do that world building really works for me. Yeah. All right, so let's move on to our second scene that we wanted to talk about. This one is also mine. I wanted to talk about the training sequence here. 
And so this happens, I guess, so Neo has just been let in on the secret and he throws up and doesn't sleep and then he gets plugged in and (laughs) goes for 10 hours downloading information to his brain. Really a... Uh, access to information in a way that I have been envious for my entire life. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And one of the more famous moments in the movie, or at least one of the moments that certainly I quote a lot and gets quoted a lot, he opens his eyes and says, I know Kung Fu. And Morpheus says, show me. And then we get this sequence where we see... (laughs) We're not even seeing Neo learn to fight. Neo has already fought, already learned how to fight, but we see him sparring with Morpheus in a, what is it, a sparring program, I think they call it? Yeah, sparring subroutine, I think they call it, something like that. And the this sequence has so many things that I that I really love. I think the fight choreography is unbelievable, and it also does... The Matrix kind of ruined action films for me for a while because it makes it very easy to watch all of the action sequences because the general structure of things is there's moves and it goes fast, 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 and then it'll slow down for Morpheus's huge crane leap or whatever. Or, and then it'll go fast, 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 and then it'll slow down for Neo to run up the wall. And sometimes it'll slow down for bullet time, and then sometimes it'll slow down for Morpheus to impart some wisdom to Neo, telling him to clear his mind or telling him, you know, the we're in a computer simulation, so there's no reason that I should be going faster than you. Yeah, and it's... The choreography is so good. The other thing that they do is... They just do such a good job of clearly articulating each of the things that's happening with the yes. action sequence. And mm-hmm. it just drives me crazy in comparison so many of the things that use, like, the shaky cam and, you know, try to obscure what's happening with the action. And The Matrix just does the opposite. And it's just so beautiful and so well done. And I love how, you know, they're in this world with access to so much technology and so many you know they can get so many weapons and all these things and it focuses so much on martial arts Mm -hmm. um and i i think you know one of the things that i find so fascinating about this film is the way that uh, they're uh, moving back and forth so quickly between like this simulated world and the real world and it's so hard to tell like what is the simulated world and what is what is not and a lot of this train sequence is focusing on that on like how much you you uh it's hard for even your body to tell the difference between those things he gets hurt at that one point and starts bleeding and then you see that he's bleeding like uh, uh or he touches his lip afterwards and is bleeding um and so you're seeing that his mind really is creating so much of what's happening and so i think a lot of what really connects with me in this training sequence is the philosophy that's being interchanged as you said the fight will slow down and then morpheus shares some bit of philosophy about what's going on and i just 
I love the stuff that they're getting to here and the way that we have like this simulacrum that's kind of on top of the world that we're imagining and kind of the way to get past that is to center yourself in your own body and I love how the martial arts aspect of it is this like they're not fighting using tools like guns and weapons they have those later on but where all of the meaningful action takes place is all physically in their bodies and like connecting with and breathing and understanding their bodies instead of just being all digital with tools. Yeah, this was such a big deal to me having this message of having to release your mind and be present with yourself that then I studied acting in high school and then went to school for musical theater. And this is pretty present in a lot of arts training, piano and acting as well. And But by the time I got there, it just felt old, like it felt old and stale because it was like, yeah, I watched The Matrix. Like, I, <laughs> there is no spoon. You know, like, exactly. I get it. <laughs> uh, yeah, I love it. And I, I, I think all of this, we, we had mentioned at the top that there's ways that you can read this as like a trans reading as well that are, you know, very clear and stand out. And the way that he's learning kind of like the ways to perform uh, perform his identity. And uh, I love when they pop into the Matrix and he sees like the idealized version of himself is kind of what's presented. And the same thing with like, I don't know if you noticed, but Morpheus, when he's in the Matrix, like he's got those glasses, his, uh, his uh, you know, He's so, like, well, um, he's so toned and so chiseled and, like, so smooth. But also, his teeth are straighter. Um, like he I has, did notice that, yeah. Yeah, he has, like, a tooth that's crooked when he's out of the Matrix and it's, like, corrected when he's in the Matrix. Um, and these kinds of things and the same kinds of things with Neo where, like, he has hair in the Matrix and doesn't when he's outside of it. Mm-hmm. It, it really shows, like, how much of the our image, our body image, is constructed. And I, I love those little bits that they're, that they're putting into this, into this training montage. Yeah, and the other, the other part of this sequence that I think is really clever is they intersperse it with the clips of the, the gang back in the real world. Yeah. Um, one of them runs and says, you got to come watch. Neo is fighting Morpheus, and so you really get the commentary of like, oh, they're they're really fast. Like this is an event, and you know we've already seen stuff that we couldn't dream of seeing in the real world. So we do sort of need someone in the world to ground us with how impressive what we're seeing really is. Yeah, and the one that stands out to me from that is when they go to jump across the buildings. And they're like, Mm -hmm. nobody ever makes it on the first jump. But what if he does? Nobody ever makes it on the first jump. Uh, And then he falls, obviously. And Cypher's like, I told you, no one ever makes it on the first jump. But uh, it really gears up for, you know, Neo. He's he's special in some way. Mm -hmm. Um, The other thing... So I did bump in this scene at the very beginning of the montage. There's just all of these, like... Or the beginning of the fighting sequence. There's all of these, like... Chinese gongs that underscore it. And I was like, that's a lot. <laughs> the go- that the dojo. A- yeah. Yeah, for the dojo. Um, but it does make this really cool effect when they 
then switch into the modern day electronica score and there's a couple times where they switch back and forth and it is just it's just so cool and it really really helps the the scene hum along the score does a lot for this movie it it really does the score is really good and also the sound design is just incredible i was thinking this is as we were watching, it's just so much of this sound design is has like this electronic feel, and mm-hmm. it's blending like old influences and new influences in really fascinating ways. And you see that throughout the sequence as well, and it's really good. Yeah, one thing that surprised me about this watch through is I swore I remember it might like it must just be like a Mandela effect, or maybe it happens in a later movie. But I thought for sure there was a moment where he successfully makes the jump but i guess there's not i i thought they yeah, went back to it at is. some point but yeah maybe in a later movie yeah i don't know yeah i don't remember I, him doing that i kept waiting for it to come up and then it then it never did so there you go yeah what why don't you talk about our next scene a little bit yeah so the next scene is they finished like the training montage they finished talking to neil about you know the concept that he might be the one i just a little tangent aside i love that his name is neo which is just an anagram of the word one um mm-hmm. anyway so um they decide that uh, then you have cypher ends up meeting with the agents and making a deal with them uh that he's going to betray the team and then they go into the matrix to meet with the oracle and yo that scene is why i like learn to like steak the steak he is eating looks so good. It's so <laughs> good, it really does. Before uh, then, I was like, I don't get it, I don't get it. But man, it looks so good. And he looks like he's enjoying it so much. Oh, yeah. You know, he's just like, oh, mm-hmm. listen, I would give up the entire real wor- world just for the taste of a juicy steak, you know. Uh, <laughs> it's good stuff. Um, so in any case, they go to the Oracle's house, and this this moment just really stood out to me then, and I still have a lot of, like, this is why I want to go back and um, and watch the, uh, the rest of the films, is essentially the mm-hmm. Oracle scene that happens here, because there's a lot that's left on the table, and um, that I feel like is just, they didn't really get to, and it's all this stuff that has to do with fate, and, you know, he comes in... And there's that moment where he goes to knock the door and they open it before he walks in. Mm-hmm. And then he comes in and, like, she says, don't worry about the lamp. And then he knocks the lamp off and she he says, oh, sorry. She says, "Don't." I already said, don't worry about it. All of these different kinds of things. And you get this really strong vibe that the Oracle just, she's really strong and really powerful, but in ways that don't seem... Like, in the setting, it really fits. There, It's ways that are less, like, technological and less, um, less like, computer-specific and feels more religious, I guess you could say, and more, like, supernatural, like, magic uh, in a lot of ways. Um, mm-hmm. And so I want to look and see where this is all going. Uh, from my best perspective, my best guess, is it seems like the Oracle has to be working... Like, they are in the Matrix. Why is the Oracle in the Matrix? Why isn't this a lady that's, like, at Zion? It seems obvious that she must be, like, a computer program of some kind or something like that. And that uh, that is the way that she has access to this. I can only imagine that, I don't know, probably, like, she's seen iterations of this before. 
and that has to be the ways that this ties in. But what I find really interesting about the sequence is the way that it looks at like the world that we're in as I think sometimes people misinterpret this film as being about what if we're inside a computer simulation, (laughs) Uh, which, you know, isn't inaccurate. But I think the point that this film is making is that it doesn't matter if we're in a computer simulation because the way that we construct our reality is a simulation, even if it's not a computer simulation. Even our identity that we project onto ourselves, uh, this idea of a personality that we have, is an illusion that our brain uh, constructs in order for us to better navigate and interpret the world. But it's not, you know, that's not actually what's going on. You have, like, so much uh, that's going on in your brain that you're just not even conscious of. And they're all collaborating, all these pieces are collaborating to project this idea of an identity. And, like, understanding this, the way that culture layers identity on when it's still just an illusion. Uh, so those are the, some of the things that stuck out in uh, to me as I was watching this. Luckily, just small things that are easy to talk yeah. about. It, it's so interesting you say that because I it actually lines up with the way I viewed this scene this time, which was different than any time I've ever seen this scene when I've watched this movie before. So... I think the the way I've always thought about this scene before is she tells Neo that he's not the one. And then I think the my reading of it before is you find out later she was basically lying to Neo because Neo needed to think he was not the one so that he would sacrifice himself to go get Morpheus at the end when Morpheus gets taken. And I always thought this was a little bit... It was just a little bit of a deceitful maneuver on the part of the directors because it doesn't really make... Like, I thought it was just there so that we would have some question about whether or not Neo was the one. Yeah. When... Because it it just wouldn't make sense. If Neo is the one and he knows he's the one, then he would know that he can go save Morpheus and be fine. So I never really liked this scene or really I I thought it was just a little bit of like underhandedness on their parts but this time I really keyed in on what she said about being the one is sort of like being in love you know it when you are and this time I thought well what if she means he doesn't become the one until he believes he is the one so at this moment when he's there when he's still uncertain he's not the one and in a sense that is what he needs to hear because he does need it for his own personal growth or whatever but it's not until later when he accepts it and he knows who he is that he becomes the one yeah, I, I, think that. I agree with that reading 100%. I think that's exactly what Morpheus is thinking when it's going on. He's like, I don't, I don't care what she said. It doesn't actually matter what she said. You're the one. And you just, you know, eventually you're going to realize it. But, yeah, this idea, I love that line as well. Uh, being the one is sort of like being in love. No one can tell you that you're uh, that you're in love. You, can, you just know it when you feel it. And mm-hmm. it's, 
I mean, he's not the one at that moment. He has the potential. And she even calls that out. She looks at him, looks at his hands and everything and says, sorry, you know, sometimes these things take take time. Uh, what kind of time, right? Maybe another life or something like that. And you, it really is like clear that, uh, that I think that the film is specifically exploring this idea of identity and... And it's not trying to throw you off for cheap, uh, for cheap tricks. And in fact, if it was trying to do that, I think that it's uh, it would be really wrongheaded the way that it goes about it. Because I came out of that feeling even more clearly that he's got to be the one if she's saying he's not, uh, or mm-hmm. if he's not yet. You know what I mean? Yeah. The other thing, so there, when I watched it this time, I did not clock that this was the approach to the inmost cave. I thought we were still going to have another moment before then. I'm not sure if we've talked about this before on the podcast, so I'll just run it down really quickly. It's uh, one of the steps in Christopher Vogler's reduction of the hero's journey. And for me, it's like one of the points in the movie where I can ground myself because it's generally, it's the moment where your protagonist stops to celebrate life and love and sometimes death before they begin their final ordeal. And once you clue into that part of movies, you can sort of feel, you. at least I do, it's like I start buckling my seatbelt where it's like I know that I'm in for my final 30 to 35 minutes of ride of this movie. But I didn't, because I knew how much movie was left, I thought we were going to get it later than this, but I think it just goes to show what a ride the last hour and 10 minutes or hour and five minutes of this movie are, because the climax is just... Never ending. Yeah. Yeah. After this, Morpheus is going to get taken, and basically from the moment I wrote it down, at 139 is when he says, guns, lots of guns, and then he hits... The button, and then I think we have like a half hour left at that point in the movie, and it's just <laughs> a wild ride to the finish. Basically, nonstop action uh, until the last moment. Like they they push it till uh, like as far as it can go. The action in this, yeah, it's true. And it, uh, this moment is the calm before the storm. Uh, mm-hmm. And you yes, also, that's another way to put it. You also just know that Cypher betrayed them, and so you're still kind of on edge through this entire mm-hmm. sequence because you don't know when the other the other shoe is going to drop. The other thing that generally happens in the approach to the inmost cave or the calm before the storm is it generally happens between the group, which is why this one feels a little weird that it's with the Oracle. But then when I was thinking about it after what helps place it is it's, I think it's also coupled with Neo driving, not just Neo, but them driving through the city. And I think that moment where he recognizes the noodle place and says, I, I used to eat there. And he, like, he's remembering his life before. And I think that does a lot of emotional work for that. And it was always a line that I just was like, ah, eh, that's a funny line. <laughs> really good noodles, <laughs> yeah. you know? Yeah. Uh, it does do a lot to ground him, that's for sure. So let's move on to our last scene here. But I do want to say, if we've talked a little bit tangentially about the Vogler hero's journey, 
But if it's something that you're interested in, I'll put a link to his book in the show notes. The Matrix is a really, it's just about textbook for following the hero's journey. If you go and read that book and then sort of plot it out with this movie, it is very easy to grok the structure and see how it all works together. It feels like they, they followed it really well. Yeah, and it's uh, the hero's journey for just, you know, new inductees is a structure that's kind of like that's been identified as being common across a lot of mythological stories. And because of that also is connected to a lot of modern day storytelling, uh, very popular for being used extensively in a lot of Disney films and also Star Wars. And this one, uh, when I'm talking about when I teach the hero's journey, the structure of the Matrix is one that I uh, oftentimes have really clearly in my mind because it hits all of the major beats really clearly. Yeah, and the the theory of it is is if this this structure is something that humans are uniquely designed to respond to. It's something that is how we intuit stories and how we want the rise and fall of them to go. So anyway. That's that tangent, but let's let's talk about the last scene here. Yeah, so the last scene we wanted to cover, it's, I mean, the entire climax of this film, the last, you know, however long it is, it takes so long, 30, 45, 45 minutes, 50 minutes, it, depending on how you measure this. But the scene that I really wanted to key in on is this fight that happens between, it's the fight where Neo really starts to believe in, in himself. Um, mm-hmm. So they are. They have rescued Morpheus. Uh, he does the thing where he uh, holds on to the. He dodges the bullets first, and then he holds on to the helicopter as it's like falling down. Actually, I can't remember the order those happen in, but it doesn't matter. They've rescued. Uh, he holds on to Trinity as the helicopter is falling. Yeah. Yes. Correct. Correct. Yeah. Yes. And then they rescue Morpheus, uh, and they're trying to escape from the Matrix. They get into the subway. Uh, Morpheus and Trinity both go into the the phone booth and you know disappear pulled out of the matrix and then the homeless guy like in the subway station turns into an agent shoots the phone and Neo is stuck there facing against the agent and he has this opportunity where he can turn around and run but he can also turn and stand and face the the agent and everyone knows before this anyone who's uh, stood their ground and fought an agent has died every time in the past and this is the moment where where neo you know he decides to he, at this point he still kind of doesn't believe that he's the one but he decides he's going to do this anyway and uh you know it's such a great sequence one of the things I love about this subway fight, uh, when I was watching it with my brother, we memorized this entire fight in the subway. This is why we watched it so many times. We just uh, <laughs> got to learn that fight. Yeah, we watched this scene over, I don't know, I've probably seen this fight uh, over 100 times, something like that. And we just practiced over and over and over everything that we could do. And we had to, you know, some things we weren't physically capable of, but we figured out workarounds and things like that. And then we would like, do this fight in public at school and things like that because we loved it so much and there's just so many great moments in here i love that this moment where he finally like 
is able to defeat the agent is when he's holding him in front of the train and he says, uh, the end is coming, Mr. Anderson. He's like, my name is Neo, and then throws him up. And this idea that it's like, you know, him taking on this name, this new name that he has and throwing off this old name is really where he is finally able to defeat the agent and escape. What are your thoughts? Yeah, one of the things, there was a Netflix Twitter thread a couple of years ago and they had, I kind of wish I hadn't seen it. I wish I had like come up with it myself. Um, but they had said that the way the agents, ins- especially Agent Smith, insist on kill- killing, insist on calling Neo Mr. Anderson, even though Neo is the name that he's chosen. It's the name that he's chosen in the real world. And then the name that he's going to go by, it's his hacker alias. The the equivalent of them doing that to dead naming what we now know as yeah. dead naming in the in the trans community or i guess <laughs> what people do to the trans community and there on this watch there's just so much violence in the way that he says mr anderson and it's just like it, it's an attack and so the yeah that moment where he says my name is neo is just very it's impactful. It's impactful uh, if you're watching it without that lens, and it's impactful once you do add that lens because he's standing up for what he wants to be called and who he is. And as you said when we were talking about the Oracle scene, like people get to decide who they are and who they want to be and what they want to be called and what they stand for. Yeah, exactly. And it's uh, it's... Even in kind of like the action scene itself, this is one of the reasons why I love the action scene is, uh, you know, when they start off fighting with the bullets and then it comes down to just them fighting. And at first you see this, um, you see the fighting happen and Neo is like coming and attacking the agent and the agent is easily defeating him. The agent comes back with a few moves and then Neo kind of copies those moves, is imitating them and Mm -hmm. they just aren't strong enough. But then he's able to start getting a, a little bit more creative and doing his own kind of thing in the choreography. He's uh, being more inventive and he's doing things that the agent hasn't been doing before. And he starts to get a little bit more ground until he gets just put up against the wall and absolutely pummeled just over and over and over again. But throughout this film, it really, or throughout this scene, it really seems like the struggle here is not even really the kung fu it's neil's desire to assert his identity over the reality and over like the personality that he has like constructed for himself and just really embody this identity that he he's not even really 100 percent sure it fits him perfectly yet yeah uh (laughs) one of the one of the things that i think is like amazing about this movie especially now uh, whatever we are, 22 years later, is the number of shots in the movie that it's like, oh, that's an iconic shot. Oh, that's an that's iconic true. shot. Yeah. Oh, that. And, it, you know, like sometimes you see during the Oscars or just wherever when they're celebrating like the history of movies and they'll do like those medleys of shots. And sometimes you'll see those one of those famous shots in movies that happened for Little Mermaid when she does the push-up on the rocks during the reprise of Part of Your World, and it's just, mm-hmm. like, this weird, I guess, deja vu feeling 
of seeing something in another context, even though now you've probably seen it in a different context, even though that context was the out of context. But that's all a long-winded way of saying, and this fight ends with one of those shots, which is uh, them standing there as the train is barreling down on them. And then finally Neo jumps up, gets him off his back by hitting the ceiling. And then you get that shot of him doing the backflip as the train just goes right past his nose. And it is, I mean, there are some moments where I just like, I just want to run through a wall. It's just like so exhilarating. It's so good. And And I have no idea how they got that shot because that's terrifying. And he looks so unbalanced as he's like, holding off like you're like he's gonna fall that there's no way he can hold himself up but he just balances and holds himself back as the train passes just within right in front of his nose it is so balletic um and so iconic and the way that it is lit is incredible the cinematography is so good there just an incredible looking shot yeah it's great do you have anything you want to say about the Anything else you want to say about this fight or should we move towards cleanup here that's it we can move towards cleanup I have a couple questions for you. Oh, do you think that EMP was not, like, a commonly known... Like, it wasn't commonly known what an EMP was before this movie? Uh, I didn't really know what it was. And I was, like, clued into movies and science fiction and things like that. So I had heard the phrase a couple of times. Um, So I think, yeah, I don't think it was common knowledge what an EMP was at the time. Yeah, I I was surprised they spelled it out for us this time. And I was like, oh, I guess this is where... Sorry, I should say there's a sequence where they're like, we're charging the EMP, the electromagnetic pulse. It'll kill... Uh, all the electronics. <laughs> kill all the electrons. And it's like, oh, whoa. that I, I felt like it was something I'd always known, but I realized I probably learned it from this movie. Yeah. And probably most of us learned it from this movie, and it became common parlance because of this movie yeah i i mean i remember watching it the first time and they said emp and like i had i think i'd read in some book somewhere it had mentioned like an emp just offhand and i remember like turning to my parents and i'm like that's that's i read that one that's an emp it knocks out all the (laughs) electronics and then they said that and i was like see i told you so um, yeah got him so yeah but i don't think it was common knowledge very much at all at that time period yeah, I thought that was kind of funny. What do you what do you make of all of in this final scene where they break into the bank or whatever structure they're breaking into? What do you make of all of the shots of the bullets falling on the ground? Do you think it's just cool or do you think there was something Yeah, so this is kind of what I was getting at a little bit earlier on like in the training sequence and things like that. I think the bullets I think the guns and the bullets in a lot of ways represent the matrix and its identity. And the mm-hmm. Kung Fu represents like centering yourself in the body with your martial arts. And so I, I think that is, it seems to me a deliberate choice that they are making that, that they have all these guns that they're using and eventually they run out of all the guns and they can't be helped anymore by the technology and they have to do everything like physically. And so I think every time you see a bullet drop, is just a little bit more knowledge that the technology is running out and the limitations of the technology are going to end at any moment. Mm. Ooh, I like that. That's good. 
Uh, I might have one or two other things. Do you have anything else for cleanup? Yeah, so the other two things, um, there's a lot of Alice in Wonderland references that I really enjoyed, mm-hmm. obviously. Um, and there's, there's one Dorothy reference. Here. Yes, there's there. Yeah. this is a very illusion-heavy um, film, and a lot of the, some of the illusions seem kind of heavy-handed. Like, there's this <laughs> one moment where they're talking about Neo, and he's like, oh, my own personal Jesus Christ, and you're like, yeah, that's a little on the nose, but that's fine, right? Um, yeah, and Zion as well, I think, is a little... Yes. Yeah. Uh, so those things. And then the other thing that I just remember and still gets me every time, there's a lot of body horror in this film of just mm-hmm. like, you know, like where his mouth seals up or where that thing goes into his belly button or when he wakes up and there's Ooh. all these tubes. And like, I don't know, it still gives me the heebie-jeebies. And it, uh, it's just the idea of like sticking tubes into my body and the the way that looked or even when they stick the thing into the back of his head i don't know there's just a lot of there's a lot of body horror going on in this one and i think it ties in with uh we had talked about you can read uh, once again you can read this with the trans lens and i think that the uncomfortableness and the the unsettlingness of some of the things that happen with the body are tying into this and this whole idea of like the simulation of your identity versus um, the reality of like your physical body and things like that. I think that's tying into all of that stuff. Yeah. Ooh, I also wanted to mention there are so many mirror shots in this Lots movie. Lots of mirrors. Yeah. And they are, I mean, they're just something that, I don't know, they add to they add a lot to the movie. You get that shot uh, in Morpheus's glasses of um, the pills before before Morpheus takes one. When several Neo shots with Neo just in the glasses as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. When Neo gets nabbed, Trinity sees him in in the reflection of her motorcycle. Uh, and that one has, I think, is particularly interesting because it's, you know. A motorcycle lens and it's a little bit of distortion with the distance so it's given this yeah. idea you're looking in the mirror but what you're seeing is not the it's a just simulation of reality yeah i mean the we didn't even talk about all the transitions but they are at least for me on this watch they all hold up they're all so cool especially the right. ones where like when it i think it zooms in on him when he's being interrogated and just yep. all that use where they're switching between the the code and uh, getting to not code. And it's, it's good stuff. It's really cool. And then the last thing I wanted to talk about, I don't, we don't have to spend too much time on it, but the obviously red pilling has become a rallying cry for the alt-right. Yeah. And I think it is just so... I, th- I think there is such an interesting dichotomy on how this movie, this movie that was made by trans women about how, or at least ostensibly part of it is about how the world that we perceive is may not be the world that actually is or the world that other people are telling us exists does not necessarily is not necessarily the world that is real. Mm-hmm. And that has the, um, I think it was Lily had said 
in an interview that there are a lot of trans people who have said to her that watching this movie saved their lives and that it saved like they were able to see themselves in the movie and I think that's great I think we especially our generation our being you and me Matt we were taught to have a healthy distrust of authority and to have for sure um, and to ask questions and to be challenging Um, and then we've seen the co-opting of that rhetoric to be used in such harmful and and taking the questioning past the point where at least I believe is uh, sane it's just uh, I guess I don't really know the word it sucks yeah and it's so weird because this is a movie that's like from the beginning it's like anti-authoritarian anti-police you know like anti-patriarchy um it's uh questioning like gender norms it's all of these kinds of things um like it's uh it's i know there's a lot of guns in the film but i think it's a pretty clearly a film that's like uh yeah there's a lot of guns uh, so, uh, but I think it's a pretty, pretty clearly like anti-gun film as well. And the way that people just completely take this and misread it in um, wildly irresponsible ways just blows my mind. And it really shows the way that uh, people just, you know, they get out of films what they bring into it. And people are just going to look for whatever confirms uh, their biases and... They're even doing it with this film that is just seems to oppose everything that these people stand for. Uh, yeah, we'll 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 know the podcast is over when people get sick of us saying people get out of movies what they put into it. <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. Yeah, right, that's so everything I have in in my notes. Do you have anything else? That's that all I've you got as say? well. Yep. That's all right. It. Okay, so that was The Matrix. This is kicking off our season two where for HBO and... Oh, I briefly forgot what our next movie was. Next week, we are going to be watching Dune. So we're staying pretty topical with this podcast, or at least as topical as we can when we have a four or five week delay from recording to watching. Uh, I do want to clarify just a little bit. This is the 2021 version of Dune, um, not the, what is it, 1987, something like that, which are both on HBO. So if you are a listener that maybe could get confused about which version of a film to watch, uh, make sure to watch the one that is from 2021. Yes, so we'll be watching, watching New Dune. And as always, if you want to give us any feedback, tell us uh, what you liked, what you didn't like. Hey, why did you spend so long talking about 1999? You can find me on Twitter at Zvazda, Z-V-A-Z-D-A. And you can find Matt at... O-R-A-Y-M-W. And if you want to send us something longer than a tweet or a series of tweets, you can email us at podcast stream it and that's just those three words no underscores no spaces no nothing podcast stream it at gmail.com and with that why don't we do you have a closing question i do um so the one question i've got here is there's this moment in the film and i think that you might have chosen something along these lines but this moment in the film where he sits down and just downloads 
10 hours worth of kung fu. Um, mm-hmm. If you had the ability to just download knowledge into your mind, uh, like he is doing, what would you learn? Like, what would you spend your 10 hours learning? Mm-hmm. I would want to know every release date or premiere date for every piece of music. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's a lot. I just, I want to have that calendar. You know, I don't want to wonder, oh, what year did Bruce Springsteen's first album come out? I just want to know, you know. I love it, yeah. That's I just want to be able to have have that view. What about yeah. you? Uh, I would learn as many languages as I could get in 10 hours. Oh, just, yeah. you know, just keep downloading languages right into my mind to become the ultimate polyglot. Um, Ooh. Yeah. Uh, currently it's taken i'm studying chinese at the moment and it's taken me um three years to get to where i'm at so if i could learn that in three minutes uh that would be great that would be nice how many languages are you at now um i speak three languages but i can read i don't know it's something like seven or eight languages something like that nice i can uh speak one language and i read music and i can read hebrew but i actually understand the music and i don't understand the hebrew (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> um, yep understandable all right uh no that wasn't what my question was for you at all yes. i was pretty sure you wouldn't have my question so in this movie neo goes to see the oracle and she tells him some news that he does not want to hear but she softens the blow by giving him a cookie mm. and which as a tangent when he bites into that cookie that cookie is rock hard and i don't understand couldn't yeah, they get a chewy gross. cookie on set? What What is yeah, going on here? But anyway, she says, by the time you finish that cookie, you'll be feeling all better. So I want to know, you're getting bad news, and what cookie would be given to you that would make you feel better? Lemon bars. Lemon bars? Yep, Do it's lemon bars. As a cookie? Um, I, you know, I don't know, but uh, a cookie's not going to work for me. It's going to have to be lemon bars. So... Mm. Yeah, uh, it's a. Uh, I can't think of a cookie that would do it for me. Uh, yeah, I'm not a huge cookie fan, uh, but lemon bars. Ugh, I could die for lemon bars, and they're just my favorite. It's what I always want for a treat whenever I get the chance. Uh, that is the thing. I think mine would be a dark chocolate chip with like sour cherry. That is just like the combination I love. And yeah, I think that would be great. That one, I don't know if it would work for to gently let me down on bad news, but it would definitely be one to work for getting me to think about the cookie. Like, ooh, these are some interesting tastes, the way these are going together. Hey, sometimes that's what you need. That's true. All right. So thanks for joining us for Cookie Talk, and we'll chat with you next week. Bye. Bye.